Hello and welcome to another episode of the Conversation of Our Generation. My name is Nick Jamel, the creator and uh, host of the podcast here. I had trouble finding that word. And today we are going to be talking to you about, or I'm going to be talking to you about coronavirus and my uh, idea that coronavirus rules everything around me. And if you're a Wu-Tang Clan fan, you get that reference. Kind of a play on the Wu flu thing. We'll get to it. It's funny if you think about it, <laughs> but I really wanted to talk about some of the trade-offs that we're making. I'm not going to talk as much about the virus and where I think it's going to spread and yada yada because I don't know, but the thing I do know is economics and how trade-offs work, and so by you know imploring that, I think that we can look at, okay, what are some of the options that we have for actually solving this problem because throwing ourselves into a depression is not a solution to uh, an extra seasonal flu in all intents and purposes as of now. <clears throat> and so, are there other things we could be doing to shore up the medical facilities to ensure that you know they have what they need in order to really handle more and more patients at the same time as we open up the economy and quarantine the right people? You know, we can start looking at other options that will help us address this problem without collapsing our economy. And so that's what I really wanted to talk about today because I think it's important to explore the options and what they actually mean for the American people because now that we've seen what quarantine means for our economy and for us and our sanity, now I think it's fair to say that it's not the long-term solution. So, that's what we'll be talking about today. But before I get too far ahead of myself, I want to remind you that you can go to facebook.com slash conversation for our generation or Twitter at con of our gen to join the conversation and start engaging on social media there and sharing it with friends as well as engaging me in conversation, giving me your ideas. If you have thoughts or heard other solutions that people have out there for this, definitely send them, send them my way. Uh, you can go to conversationforgeneration.com in order to see more content to see, get links to all of my other work, you know, if I, you can go to YouTube and see my channel there as well, um, but all that stuff's on conversationforgeneration.com, and you can also subscribe on iTunes, at if you just search Conversation for Generation, I'll pop up in there, and just leaving a good rating, good review, and following the podcast, those kinds of things really, really help spread this, and also sharing it from there with other people you think might enjoy this. So, what I want to talk... Oh, sorry. Before I can get dive into what I want to talk about, let's do the quote of the week. <clears throat> so, this one comes from Dwight D. Eisenhower. And the quote is, Though force can protect an emergency, only justice, fairness, consideration, and cooperation can finally lead men to the dawn of eternal peace. And I think... This is an important thing to remember in an emergency that there are circumstances where you have to go and allow an emergency level of power in in people's hands sometimes. That's, you know, if you are in wartime, if you are in, if you've just been attacked like we were at Pearl Harbor, if, you know, these kinds of things, all of a sudden you have to flip a switch and go into a mode that isn't your normal everyday mode. You have to fight or flight at that moment, right? And so that is a whole different circumstance than what you 
are working towards for your actual end goal, right? That is fighting to survive so that you can continue then afterwards to create a just, fair, you know, co- cooperative and considerate, you know, I guess I would say instead of consideration, you know, like charitable uh, society so that you actually can have a society of peace. That's what leads to it, right? It's when people are cooperating, when they're offering up in charity, when there is justice and fairness and understanding under of the law under, you know, the fairness part, you have the justice to give people their just desserts, and then you have the fairness to say, hey, this person is not the same as this other person who did this crime, or this person is not the same as this other person who doesn't have a job, you know? There's a difference between someone who is lazy and doesn't have a job and someone who, you know, is severely handicapped or has some other issue that prevents them actually from physically working even though they want to. Those are two different cases. And so you look at them differently. At least you should. And so I think that we can recognize that there was a point in our, this pandemic at least, that there was a need for action at some level from someone who can organize everyone all at once to slow down the spread and so that we can see what this virus is so that we can see how it's going to affect us and give us a couple weeks to plan and make adjustments. Sure. I'm fine with that. But after that period, we need a plan. We need something more than just stay at home for the rest of your life because that's just not a solution. And so that's what I want to talk about today is what are some of those solutions that we can propose that could allow us to fight this virus and keep it at bay as much as possible while still allowing our economy and for people to earn money and pay their bills. I mean, there's a lot of problems going on because of this quarantine. And so I want to see if we can find a balance that makes life less incredibly difficult on either end of my family members getting this disease and dying or my financial ruin declaring bankruptcy and losing my house. Like those shouldn't be our two options. I think we can find somewhere in the middle that both things are kind of eh for a while. They're a little tough, but you get through it for most people. So, so that's what I want to talk about today. <clears throat> and the first thing I think is important is like I said at the top of the show, we need to talk about the trade-offs that we're making. And before we can talk about that, I think we need to talk about what a trade-off is because I'm seeing them discussed as if there's just no downside to quarantining for weeks or the downside to quarantining for weeks is economic ruin, but it saves lives. And so we need to, and that's, I think, a short-sighted look at things, but especially if you consider the fact that they're weighing like okay, this could possibly kill millions of Americans, supposedly. They'll put those kinds of numbers out there and then say, but we could like have a small depression or recession for a little bit and save those people's lives. And it's like, okay, but what might be the fallout of that recession or depression? Let's look at that worst case scenario and compare those because they're not doing that. They're saying, oh, your stock market or your stock market took a hit. So your 401k is going to be hurting for a while, but we're saving lives. And I don't think those are the trade-offs that are being made, and I think it's important to look at this. So, 
basically a trade-off is whenever you make a decision, you have, you know, let's say you have two paths before you and you go down one path, then in doing that, you forego the chance to go down the other path at that time. Now, you can obviously go go on that hike again, whatever it is, and go down that other path that time, but then you're also foregoing the one you went down last time. And so every decision you make has other decisions you could have made in its place. And because you're not making those, you're trading those other potential decisions for the decision you made because you believe it's the best one at any given time, right? So if you decide to go to a restaurant, there's hundreds of other restaurants probably around you. You're giving up the chance to go to all those other restaurants or even eat in because that's an, that's a comparable idea. Or maybe, you know, go over to your friend's house to eat or whatever it is. There's, you're just going to eat dinner that night. There's tons of ways you could eat dinner that night. You could order takeout instead of going and sitting down at a restaurant, whatever those things are. But your, whatever your decision is that you make now, once you, once you make that decision and stick with it, you're trading other things that you could have done for that. So there's a, there's a cost actually in that, right? There's a, it's what's called the opportunity cost. And so it's the neck, the opportunity cost is the next best option that you're foregoing in order to have this best option. So if you decide to make a hundred dollars doing something, but you could have made $80 make doing another job for the same amount of time. Well, you don't, forego, let's, or sorry, you don't, not forego. It's not like you could make a hundred dollars or zero dollars. It's, you can make a hundred dollars or eighty dollars. So you make a twenty dollar better decision, not a one hundred dollar better decision, right? And so the trade-offs, you have to compare those options together. The, if you're comparing the worst case scenario on one side, you have to look at what the worst case scenario is on the other in order to say, you know, that this is okay. Because if you're saying, if, if they tell you, if you're in the Roman Colosseum and they say, okay, there's a bear on one door and a lion behind the other and you have to choose, well, you're not choosing between bear and no bear or lion and no lion. You're choosing which animal you're going to fight, right? So <laughs> that's not how the question's being presented. It's like right now they're acting like you know, there's a lion behind this door and there's a, shh, there's a bear. Don't tell anybody, but there's a bear behind this other door. And that's how it's being presented. <laughs> and the person choosing the lion doesn't know that, or the person trying to choose rather the bear door as the problem. Cause they say, Hey, there's no problem here is going to get mauled by a bear and not even know it. <laughs> and that's what we're walking into economically. And I believe at a real societal level as well, because there's already a lot of unrest and panic and fear and anxiety in our culture today because of, I mean, the mainstream media stoking the fear and the fact that there is an underlying concern that you should be concerned about this issue. I was listening to a psychologist, or he's, not, he's a counselor, I guess, I don't know exactly what he does. He does counseling and helps people out with problems and mental health and all of that. Uh, his name is Dr. Greg Popcheck. And I was listening to him recently, and he talked about um, that you shouldn't worry or be anxious. You should have concern, right? But when you're worried or anxious, you're just thinking of the problem. You're like, how bad could the problem get? What else could the problem 
show us like what other problems could we have. That's what you're thinking about. When you're concerned, what you say is, okay, here's the problem. Here's kind of what's being done about it. Here's maybe some other things we could do about it. Let's maybe try and see what those other things would give us. Let's, and you're looking at solutions, not the problem. You're taking the problem seriously. In fact, I think a lot of times the person who's concerned and not worried is the one taking the problem more seriously because the person who's worried is generally, there's actual mental health problems that make you worry because you can't help it. A lot of the people who are worried who can help it because obviously they don't go about their regular daily life worried. The people who do that probably can't help it. But the people who are normally going about their daily life worried and now all of a sudden are in a panic about this, you know, I don't understand exactly what they're panicking about, right? We have a lot of options on the table to fix and address this problem. I just like to see us use all of our resources in doing so. But I think that what we need to do is look at these trade-offs and be concerned about what's going on because there is reason to be concerned, but we shouldn't be worried. We shouldn't be afraid of what's going on. We shouldn't be freaking out about it either. We should be looking at it and saying, okay, here's what's happening. What are some options that we have that could be solutions to some of these problems? So what I want to talk about is, first of all, like I said, I'm not a virologist. I can't promise you that, you know, I have any idea of how to stop the spread of the disease in any way necessarily. What I can say is I can see other things that are happening around the world and I can understand uh, a little bit of the aspect, the political and the economic aspect of what some of these things would do instead of what we're doing to the economy now and say maybe these things could be more worth it. So some of the things that are being done, first of all, this 15-day quarantine has allowed us to hopefully, theoretically, what they should be doing at a lot of levels is ramping up our supply chain to produce the mass to get us the test, to start testing this vaccine, all those things. We've already started testing the vaccine. We have drugs that we think help treat this, the malaria drug. So we have made a lot of progress in like nine days on these things. I mean, if you look at how long some of this stuff goes on in our work, my work, we work with a software company that created quality management software for medical device companies and how long helping them get through the FDA because it takes so long and it's so complicated and they have to run so many tests and trials and all these things and keep track of all the progress and so on and so forth for so long that they've there's a dedicated software that's out there for those people (laughs) and it's so it's crazy how hard this stuff normally is but they're pumping it through like mad and doing trials and so that's great to see and so what I want to look at is what have we used this time over the last couple of weeks that we've been kind of shutting down and slowing everything down to be ready to fight whatever's going to come our way. And I think that we have done that. So that's one first thing that if you're making this trade off, that needs to be happening. If, if we're staying at home and wrecking our economy and they were sitting on their with their thumbs up their butt, then that's a different story. But they were making stuff happen at the, you know the government and other manufacturers and all those things were working together to make something happen. And so 
what I want to look at is some of the things that other people have been doing is quarantining only the sick and susceptible. So if you get the coronavirus or if you feel symptomatic, you know, you quarantine yourself for 14 days and then, and especially until after your fever is gone, if you have a fever and all that, if you're still sick after 14 days, then what you'll do is you'll go and, sorry, if you're sick after 14 days, then, and then you ha- maybe go to the hospital, probably at that point, I would think, because you shouldn't be sick that long. That shows that something's wrong. Or, you know, wait it out a little longer. Maybe if you're starting to feel better a little bit, you can do some work from home, whatever it is. But quarantining the sick quickly and strictly, making sure that people know they have to be home, like cannot leave the house, spray down your house, all of those things. Because we've seen people be fairly okay with, you know, being home just if they don't have the disease and are putting up with that. But if you are actually sick, then quarantine yourself. That's easy. (laughs) And then also the susceptible people. I think that, you know, people who are in nursing homes of a certain, you know, of the age that it's really affecting people, people who have the other... I can't think of the word right now. Other diseases, um, the things that have a high comorbidity rate, right? Is that exactly what it is? The things that really make the disease worse, your lung infections, heart problems. You know, I think diabetes does as well from what I've heard. But diabetes, I feel like just makes everything worse because it just sucks as a disease. And so I think that looking at quarantining those people like we all are right now, just so that they stay away from possibly getting the infection because they're the ones who are, you know, susceptible to actually having it a serious uh, bout at it and a serious potential of death. So now at the same time, even the worst case scenario for some of those people, 85 out of 100 still do recover based on what we're seeing. I mean, if it, if it is a 15% death rate, that means 85% of people recover. So there is that point, point as well, but I don't want to take a 15% chance that my grandpa is going to die because he gets this disease. That doesn't sound like a gamble that I'm willing to take. So I think that it's important to quarantine those people off as much as possible, or not as much as possible, like hard and fast. And then quarantine the sick hard and fast. And then test everyone who shows symptoms at all. And test people even if they're kind of mildly. Like if they're like, I think it's just allergies, test them. Have the test ready, test people. Anyone who's sick goes home. And this will help us to stop that spread the same, I would think, I don't know. I would think this would help us at stopping the spread as much as just everyone staying home. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe because you would be out and about for a day or two before you feel sick or maybe even a week before you feel sick. Then, or maybe even as long as you don't even know it. But the other thing is that's going to start building up herd immunity. If the people who are walking around don't even know they're sick, then people are going to get micro exposure as well. And, you know, as long as you have the really vulnerable people and the actually sick, sick people, the worst strains of the virus that are the worst uh, 
not strain because it's all the virus, but the worst uh, reactions to the virus, right? Because potentially they could have a little bit differently mutated virus in them that makes it worse than other people have. So <clears throat> then if you have those people quarantined off and you're testing people who have it, but allowing people to go about their business and kind of start to build up her immunity. Like if I run into it where someone who was sick a couple of days ago and I don't get sick, but my body fights off the virus and then I kind of touch it somewhere else and come in contact with it and my body fights it off. Now my body is getting ready to next fall or whenever this may come back. Like if it does come back like the seasonal flu, then I'm able to have the antibodies to fight it. Right. I mean, that's how the seasonal flu works every fall is, you know, they do have the vaccines for it, but I've had, <laughs> I've had, I have gone through, you know, 24 flu seasons now. And so my body is able to fight the flu in a general way. I haven't gotten a flu vaccine ever. And I don't remember the last time, if ever that I got it, knock on wood, you know? So I think that that's an important distinction to make there that <clears throat> it's not necessarily, you know, going to infect everybody. You might just build up your immunity. And so kind of being exposed to it somewhat, especially where it's weakened, if it's, they say you can live on these services for so long, but if you're getting there 24 hours later when it's about to die as a virus, then you're going to run into a very weakened virus. The same as what you do with vaccines and things like that, I would think. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's just how I'm looking at some of these things is if you have people with solid immune systems running into this and building their immune system up against it, then I think that's a good thing. <clears throat> and so the young people go about no kind of normal business trying to, you know, still stay a little bit socially distanced from each other as far as like, you know, still greet each other with like we our early guidelines were like greet each other with an elbow bump and use Lysol everywhere and make sure that you're washing your hands, not touching your face, all those things. And I said that well, not touching your facing as I was like itching my nose. <laughs> so we all know how hard those things can be. But if you, if you just follow those as a young person and are good, then you won't spread it. You know, theoretically, you shouldn't be spreading it too much. That's the idea. And so those are kind of some solutions that are out there that I've seen that make sense. If you bundle those things together, that could be a potential other solution. And so now let's look at some of the trade-offs. Well, economically, the solution that I'm talking about here with quarantining only the sick and susceptible would be kind of like when we have the flu in the fall. Some things might slow down for people because, you know, if you get sick and you're out for two weeks, then that... <laughs> That changes things for you. That slows your stuff down for a little while. You know, it messes up your your schedule a little bit. And so, sure, okay, that's different. And then testing everyone who shows symptoms at all is just a good way to make sure that people who are symptomatic are getting out of the general population. And then young people can just go about their business, you know, young and healthy. And, you know, and when I say young, I mean people who aren't in those so like 55 or whatever that number is at the top, you know, at the low end of that upper demographic that's getting hit hard, whatever that number below that is, you know, they can go about their business. Maybe if you're in that gray area there, then 
be careful if you have if you're a lifelong smoker in your 50 you know maybe you know be careful about it because it obviously hits smokers pretty hard and some of those things so I would think about it that way too but this is going to be a lot less hard on the economy <clears throat> and it seems to me to give people a lot more hope about what's going on and then it also just doesn't allow the not allow but it doesn't make for as much panic and the other thing is who says that this is going to kill more people right we we talk about the flattening the curve idea <clears throat> and we talked about that i think last week at the beginning of my uh, the episode how the idea of this was to flatten the curve so that the medical facilities don't get overwhelmed well if we have two weeks of the medical facilities ramping up and changing things around my wife who is working to be a nurse is telling me how they're changing all the floors around they're creating whole new like they're saying we're not doing any of these elective surgeries so we're clearing this area to take corona patients we're doing that you know all of those things so the there are a lot of adjustments already having been made or being made and that are going to be made at <clears throat> these hospitals there is a supply chain that's i'm assuming ramping up right now i would like to know that before I implement, before we implement something like I'm talking about here, that there are going to be masks. I think people should wear masks if you can. If you, like, if you think you're symptomatic and you haven't gotten a test yet, then you can put a mask on. And guess what? The mask isn't so you don't get sick. The mask is so you don't spread it to other people for the most part. At least these masks. That's not the same as like the medical grade stuff that doctors are using when they're helping people. I'm talking about the masks that you use, like so, like the surgical mask, for instance. That's so that they don't get stuff in your wounds while you, they're operating on you. It's not so you don't, you know, they're not worried about catching something from, you know, someone they're doing orthopedic surgery on, right? They're worried about giving you something about their breath or whatever, potentially, that they came in contact with in that hospital, transferring to you. That's why they wear those masks. There are masks that prevent the person from getting sick who's wearing it, but those aren't the ones that they're talking about generally for general population so have those have the vaccine have the tests ramping up and going out like crazy and my thought is is that maybe we could find the curve by keeping the people who are highly likely to need hospital care completely quarantined and then if we have drugs that speed the process of healing up that you know make it to where you can be at home and not in the hospital because of that malaria drug or because make it so that you recover three times as fast, well, then that's going to reduce strain on the medical system, right? If there's a drug, which, by the way, they can just, like, flip a switch and start making this drug because, I mean, if it's a pill, because it's super easy to just change that, and at least from what I understand in the mass manufacturing of those, it's really easy to change that and start pumping those out like crazy if that's the medicine that we're going to use, at least to start if they find that it works <clears throat> and so we can definitely <clears throat> start reducing hospital time ho the time in the hospital for each person that would reduce the load see that's the thing is they're just saying less sick people who need hospitals reduces the load but there's other ways if you are it's like a, if you go to a nice Italian restaurant and it's a sit-down place and you stay there for a while then they're going to be turning, you know, a lot. They're going to turn a decent number of tables, but maybe they do 40, 50 tables in a night. 
but if you go to a breakfast place, you know, if you go to, I don't know if Lincoln Square is everywhere else, but it, there's a bunch here in Indianapolis. I don't know if it's, a, but like if you go to your pancake house or your IHOP or something like that, man, they turn tables like crazy. They'll do three, four times as many tables easily in a breakfast uh, time than, you know, a nice Italian restaurant would do during dinner because they don't walk up to you and say, oh, let's get you a bottle of wine, give you a little time. Okay, here's your bread now, a little time. Here's your salad. No, it's like, what do you want? All right, you want pancakes and sausage? Cool. You want an egg and toast? Cool. Boom. Comes right back out. <laughs> like, it's out there in like five minutes. You eat real fast. Here's the check. Boom. See ya. And you're done with your meal by the time people in a nice Italian restaurant are getting their salads. <laughs> and so, so that's how it, that's kind of how you have to look at this is, could the hospitals serve people like, like a breakfast place instead of a nice Italian dinner? If we could, then they're going to be able to get a lot more people through. They're going to be able to handle a lot more sick people than they would otherwise. And if there's also the fact that you maybe don't need to go to critical care, but you just go to a general, you, you maybe we have some wings that are, we say for now, you're not getting some of these elective surgeries at certain hospitals, and these hospitals have wings available to just take care of people who kind of need a little bit of intermediate care, um, come in, test, stay there for a day, and then go home and get quarantined. Can we do that? I would think so. I don't know. I mean, I just think that there's other solutions. And the problem is, with all these trade-offs that we're talking about, we're taking one profession's word at these things. And that's where I'm trying to question the common idea that this is the best idea there is. Because the fact of the matter is, the virologist doesn't know economics, like I mentioned. They don't know politics. They don't know how people react in disasters, other than anecdotally. They don't study those things. They don't study even the healthcare system. I bet you if you had someone who's an expert in the healthcare system come out to the virologist and start saying, here's some other solutions that we could implement. Here's some other, you know, I know the healthcare system and I, not me, but someone could say, I know the healthcare system and the supply chain for medical stuff, you know, I can tell you how we can ramp some of these other things up so we can handle more patients. What's the, you know, what, how much could people go out and about now if we could increase our max load to this? You know, why are we not having, and well, maybe we are, but why are these conversations not being had in a big level in the media, especially? Because supposedly they're the ones who are giving us this new, all the news and all this opinion. Why is their opinion just <laughs> like, Stay at home, shut down, that's what they say. Why aren't we looking at other ideas that are out there? And so that's why it feels like this Wuhan flu is just running my life in so many ways. And the name of the title, you know, the the song is, for those of you who don't get it, uh, the Wu-Tang Clan has a song called Cash Rules Everything Around Me. And I won't say the next part because the next part's, you know, cream like cash rules everything around me get the money but we don't want to do like cream get coronavirus i don't think that that really translates well <laughs> but i would like to say cream get the money and let's get the economy going again in some way shape or form because i think that's an important thing and the last thing that i didn't talk about here yet is you know again we talked about the worst case scenario of like, you know, they say all these people could get sick and die, we could catch up to Italy, and if you amplify that to the percentage, or to our population, then this, this, and this, although we're not even tracking at that, and 
and there's a lot of bad information out there. I saw a graph that made it look like we are growing like linearly and China and all these other places that we're hearing are terrible are kind of like leveling off. But the graph goes from 0 to 10 is one thing, then 10 to 20, then it looks like probably 20 to 50, 50 to 100, 100 to 200, 200 to 500, 500 to 1,000. And so it's so even though that Italy and China's growth is probably linear or exponential and ours is kind of linear-esque but not bad, um, it's a little bit below, it's below China and even below Italy who is a smaller population than us. And and so, so even though we're below them, it looks like we're just going to shoot right past them because we're growing linearly and they're leveled off. But the fact is, even if we grow linearly, we'd still level off below them because of the way this is, the graph is made. So there's also misinformation out there. But I do want to talk about the worst case scenario because the fact of the matter is, if we decide to collapse our economy and we have 30% unemployment, what comes from that? I mean, here's the thing is, people forget that the Great Depression was terrible, first of all. People, I think, forget that and act like, oh, that's just some far gone, you know, way in the past thing. But no, I mean, my great-grandparents were in it. <laughs> I'm sure that plenty of people have grandparents who are in it that are still alive today. I mean, there's people who are living today who went through it. So it's not that far gone. And so it can happen again, is what I'm trying to say. And then also... You know, what happens then from there? Because the programs that came from the Great Depression were terrible for America. They were just absolutely awful, dreadful things. And same with what happened in, and it led up to what happened in the Great Society with Lyndon B. Johnson. We started moving in that direction, then he capitalized on it and continued to move in that direction. So, and if we collapse the world economy, what's going to happen to all the people in Africa? I mean, were you going to kill hundreds of thousands of people in Africa who depend on resources that you know because when they lose livelihood it's not oh i have to cut back on going to nice restaurants in the trendy parts of town when you collapse the world economy and that happens in africa now you're saying we're not able to get cold to people in africa to fuel their homes and have electricity and to heat or cool their houses or whatever it is what does that do to those people who really don't have the comforts that we have so I do think that we need to think at a bigger level and look at all the consequences, look at the trade-offs and see what the best solutions are. And I'm not the expert to have all the solutions. I don't even have all the insight because I, I don't know if we have access to all the information that is coming out each and every day. But I think we do need to ask these questions and we do need to think like this a little bit more. So thank you for listening to this episode of The Conversation of Our Generation. Let's get the dialogue going. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>